This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode featuring hunters and outdoorsmen. Donnie Vincent, Cam Haynes, Robbie Kroger, Brad Leone, John Barklow, Jim Shockey, and John Norris. Here they are. Enjoy. Donnie Vincent. Donnie is an explorer, biologist, filmmaker, conservationist, and sportsman. He received his degree in wildlife biology from the University of Minnesota and was able to pursue his passion for nature with research projects in Bangladesh to study Bengal tigers and Alaska to study spawning salmon. Since then, he has produced award-winning films, including The Other Side, Terra Nova, The Rivers Divide, and The Winds of Adak. Here's Donnie. For me, training is, you know, like I'm a, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a mental mess, Jack. And I have, I'm a person that I really suffer from lack of self-confidence. I have my whole life. So I need to exercise and I need to immerse myself in, in being outside. And those two things keep me um, balanced and, and not only push weights, but I also need to fat tire bike and I need to rock and I need to, um, you know, do cold weather things. And these are, I just need to, I just need to do it. Oh, you know, I've heard you say that before about the confidence and I've seen you talk about it with your, with your bow, you know, in the past, uh, confidence there. And, you know, if you never mentioned it, I never would have guessed that. No one would have ever guessed that seeing what you do and how disciplined you are in your approach and how thoughtful you are in your writing and your films and everything. It's just an incredible. I appreciate and, that. Oh, of course, of course. And, 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 uh, none of that would point to a lack of self-confidence. You know, it points to being thoughtful, which is something I appreciate about, uh, about you and, and all that, all that you do. But I never would have thought that you needed to stay disciplined because of a lack of self-confidence in, in anything. Cause you're so inspirational and in all that you do for so many I people, me, me included, of course. Um, that, uh, but, I, but I need to take some lessons because when we first got here, man, we got out of the car in park city, my wife and I, and we were in the Smith's parking lot, the grocery store. And, uh, we're looking around and we're like, Oh my, people are in some pretty good shape up here in park city. I mean, every, <laughs> every other person's an Olympic athlete, you know, they're coming here for the lifestyle. This is pre pandemic. So they weren't fleeing from anything. They were coming mm-hmm. here because of that lifestyle. And a lot of people had, you know, hit their number in New York and California and kind of had to could take a breath and spend time with family. But as part of that, it was kind of a more holistic approach to life and being in shape yeah. was certainly a part of that. And it was yeah. noticeable. Uh, yeah. and, uh, when we first got here, I was working out with these guys. Awesome. They got Hobie Darling. He was the former CEO of Skull Candy, And these guy, Eric Snyder, these guys were crushing it. Every morning at five, we would meet up and just do these insane workouts these guys would put together. And it was good for about a year. Then the first book yeah. came out and then I kept going through there. I've been on book tour. I was getting after it. And then the second book came out and it was like, okay, now you're juggling two things and you're just writing the third and all this. And so, uh, in order to build the foundation is what I tell myself anyway, uh, a few things had mm-hmm. to get prioritized over others. And the, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the fitness dropped down a couple notches, um, off, <laughs> essentially off, off the board, but it is, it is, I was chasing after our little guy yesterday on a motorcycle. He's got this yeah. little, uh, 125 yeah. and he was like zipping down the road by the house and I was just sprinting after him because I'm just not quite so sure that he can handle himself on it yet. yeah it's a bigger yeah. bike and I he came to a stop and then I came to a stop next to him and I was like 
yeah, I got to get back after it. Like this is <laughs> the whole point of working out is to be in shape for life. And uh, I'm, I'm having a little, uh, you know, I'm feeling it chasing after our little guy, but you're up at four and you're getting out, but it's not just the workouts. It's also a little like mental quiet time. You get to read, you get to do a yeah. few other things in there, not just the, just throw the weights around and, and shoot the bow, but you get to kind of take a breath before the rest of the world wakes up. Is that yep. right? That Yep. That's right. I like the quiet time. And, and, um, you know, I had a guy, you know, that little short video that I put together called who we are, the oh, so kind of amazing. why we hunt. Oh yeah. Uh, appreciate that. Um, but I had this guy a few years ago, he wrote me, um, and he hasn't, he hasn't, I haven't heard from him in about a year and I hope it's not for the reason I'm about to tell you, but this guy wrote me, he'd write me about every week and he was, uh, this gentleman was suicidal oh. and he just said, Hey, I con I contemplate every day taking my life. And, um, and he said, and I'm not a hunter, but he said, when, when I get, start going down that dark hallway, I watch who we are. And I watched it a couple of times. And he said, it just kind of makes me feel human. And it makes me want to get up and kind of move my body and get outside. And he said, that's kind of my equalizer. And then he's, he's like, I essentially kind of forget about it for 24 hours. And, and, um, and so I kind of, uh, do the same thing. Like I have to, if I'm getting, down in the dumps because I don't want to, I don't really ever talk about this, but I really don't want to participate in life at all. Like I love people. I love, like, I love that you're writing books. I love, I would love to travel and see you. Um, I, I love doing different things, but I don't want to participate in social media. I don't, I haven't, you know, like you said, some people hit their number and, and move to Salt Lake city. Like I want to hit my number, which I don't even know what it is but I want to hit my number and I want to cancel my, um, Instagram account. I want to cancel my Facebook account. I want to, I want to remove myself from life. And I just want to fish and bow hunt and hike and mountain bike and explore. That's all I want to do. I don't need literally anything else. I don't need another fancy meal. I don't need another Broadway show. I don't, I know that's closed minded, but I, I don't really need that stuff. So when I start kind of going down the road of everything catching up to me, you know, I need to get outside and go for a walk. And, and, um, I'm so easily entertained. Uh, have you, I'm a hoping you've read Aldo Leopold. Oh yeah. You read yeah, San yeah. County Almanac. Yeah. yeah. So his San County Almanac, I, I can't speak like he can. I, I, I'm not as in tune with nature as he was, but you know, yesterday I was walking in the pouring rain on a piece of woods, uh, just East of here. And I bumped a woodcock, a little, a mm -hmm. little woodland migratory bird. Yeah. And, um, that made my whole day like awesome. seeing that woodcock and he jumped up and he buzzed out and they have, you know, they have a really long bill. They have really big eyes and, and a little body and big wings. And they, when they fly away, it's like a rough grouse. You can hear that face that pop, 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 and they just pop, 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 like a helicopter kind of. And I saw that and it just is almost like a reset button to me. Right. Or if I catch a fish and I get to hold a fish and see it or, and so oftentimes like this gentleman, who would watch who we are. Like if I start to get down in the dumps, um, and actually something with one of your books, but I will read some Aldo Leopold or I'll listen to a book of yours. I have this, um, fantasy, if you will, like this, uh, malice fantasy or this gross, uh, masochistic fantasy of, do you know, when, um, your character Reese, and his friend is his name Rafe. Yep. In the gentleman of Montana. Yep, that's Rafe. Is that right? 
Yeah. And those people that come, um, the assassins that come to kill everyone when they're in Montana. Yeah. Like I like, I sometimes devil's head. If I can't sleep, I, I, if I can't sleep at night, I will pretend that a bunch of assassins are coming to the cabin to kill me. And I'll start planning my program of where I'm going to go, what guns I'm going to grab, what am I going to do? And then I'll fall asleep. Like it'll kind of lull me into that. And so do you know what I'm talking about? Well, maybe it's about being prepped for life or something like that. Maybe there's a, there's a something in there where you're thinking about being prepped for, for anything because the hunting and the protection of defense of life are so connected. And, you know, you talk about it in, um, in who we are, you talk about that connection to the past and hunting being in our DNA. And only recently have we had the luxury quote unquote of not having to put food on the table for ourselves with going to the grocery store and just throwing into the cart without thought. Um, and you know, I, I, I think about that and I thought about that as I was writing Savage Sun. Um, I was, th- I was thinking about who we are and then I was thinking about how closely intertwined that is with protecting the gift of life and then protecting those who you are responsible for kids, spouse, tribe, community, country, whatever it might be. And once again, that same sliver of the, of human existence where we've been able to go to the grocery store, that's about the same time we've been able to call 911 or we've been able to trust our military to go do whatever they're doing out there to keep us safe and allow us to have these, these luxuries that don't, uh, that aren't connected to the land, the animals that inhabit it, or the weapons that we need to defend our lives and those of our loved ones. So those things are so connected together. So maybe in that, maybe there, there's that connection there. You're, you're, you're putting food on the table. You're so, uh, you know, I mean, when you think about this stuff all the time, it's only natural that that protection side of it and that defense of life, because they're so intertwined there. I mean, there's no, yeah, there's no disconnect. For sure. And the same for things sure. like I talk about in Savage Sun, the same tools that we used to use as humans, I mean, when I say we, yeah. uh, to put food on the table, well, you pick up that same implement to go defend the tribe, defend yep, the family. Those were the same things. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's, that's a part of it. You think about those things and then you're like, okay, I'm prepared. I can put food on the table here. All right, yeah. here we go. Now I can get some and sleep. It's, it's funny because when we have things go wrong, when we're in the wilderness, whether that be a bear attack or uh, flipping a raft or a loss of gear or something that breaks that is essential. It's it's funny how those trips become almost immediately a military type response. Whereas, you know, when you're hunting, that's one level. And even when you're approaching animals, there's a level of that. And obviously um, when you're hunting, somebody's not shooting at you or planning on shooting at you. But when you have something go wrong, flipping a raft, mauled by a bear, um, you, you start to kind of respond to things tactfully in that manner because it, now you're no longer really worrying about the hunt the reason you were there is over with or needs to be compartmentalized and stored away for a little bit until you address this immediate fear or issue right in front of you if somebody's having a heart attack or um i had a guy that i was fly fishing one time he had a seizure in the middle of a super dangerous river and just in the talkeetna river in alaska and just started floating downstream and so you you have these things you you know you start to respond um, right away, but I, I, I can definitely appreciate how the two, um, are intertwined. John Norris. John is the author of the book, Hidden War, how special operations game wardens are reclaiming wildlands from the drug cartels. For more than two decades, he served as a game warden for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. During his time as a game warden, he helped develop and lead the marijuana enforcement team, an elite tactical unit targeting drug cartel operations on California's public lands. 
Here's John. When did you find out that, hey, there's a little more of, of the, uh, not the law enforcement as far as checking tags and making that sort of thing, but as far as, hey, there are some serious people out here uh, doing the marijuana grows, protecting those crops. Uh, there's some serious crimes going out here that I'm going to be involved with uh, figuring out where, where my place is as, as a warden dealing with these sorts of things, uh, protecting the environment, protecting these animals, uh, you know, whatever it might be. When did you find out that, uh, is that in the academy or did you know it before going in? Like, when did you know there was going to be so much of a, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but a law enforcement tact to what you were going to be doing. Yeah, the the diversity of what we did on what I call the traditional role was pretty, you know, ingrained in the academy. And in the academy, we had some really hardcore tactical officers, military veterans, Vietnam vets, uh, you know, Gregor, who his call sign is rock in both my books. Um, the battle experience he has around what you and I have experienced domestically and abroad uh, was intense, especially what he saw in Vietnam, uh, especially losing a special forces brother from an A-team um, that's still MIA. Um, so when he comes into being a game warden from a life of military special operations and then, you know, a standard law enforcement, he was hard in a yeah. good way, you know, um, doing felony car stops, knowing we're going to go up against spotlighters that are not only poaching animals, but where I'm at in Riverside County, it's probably gangbangers coming over with assault weapons and they've done drive-bys. Now they're just out, you know, pleasure killing, for lack of a better term. Um, and those were the type of crimes that I had to get embedded uh, and 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 really understand and get my tactics solid, even as a, you know, early 20s pup starting my career to deal with that when I went to Riverside. In addition to all the fishing and the stream bed alteration, uh, you know, everything from falconers and, you know, inspecting mews for, for you know, guys that fly falcons and wow. uh, teaching hunter education to kids. Uh, you know, the conservationist is you. I know that's near and dear to you with your kids, like we talked about. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most pleasurable parts of my career was that aspect. But that was the traditional stuff that I signed up for, loved, couldn't look back, had no, you know, regrets or reservations. And that's what I wanted to do. And the first 10 to 12 years of my career, that's what I focused on. The whole cartel, trespass grow, you know, embedded eco-terrorism in America. None of that was really known to us at the time. Um, the cartels were just starting to come across the border on the San Diego side and starting to embed in our national forests, like the Cleveland National Forest, mm -hmm. Anza Borrego Park that you're familiar with in San Diego County. <clears throat> that was all starting in the mid, I'm going to say early to mid 80s. So they hadn't really been embedded in America that long. Um, U.S. Forest Service was working with them a little bit. Um, some of the military National Guard teams were helping from a LPOP or a observation point only at the time. Um, but it was really when I got back up to Silicon Valley, when I took that transfer and had promoted to be a lieutenant in 2005, right before that in 04, and the first chapter of the first book, War in the Woods, really goes into this, that I discovered my first, you know, trespass cartel grow in an area that was so sensitive environmentally, it was, it was the perfect storm for the worst type of situation. And um, just to abbreviate that and up, you know, go too far into the book for, for time, uh, you know, issues, um, good friend of mine that was a wildlife biologist that we all grew up with, <clears throat> excuse me, working on his master's thesis on steelhead trout, red-legged, yellow-legged frog, all these threatened and endangered species, literally in the headwaters of Coyote Creek, that Henry Coast State Park, where I met that game warden, you know, back in college, the headwaters feed that. And that is one of the last steelhead migrating streams that goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean out of the South San Francisco Bay. That's how sensitive this waterway is. Um, and the fish that migrate and everything he was studying for this five-year study. And about year three in 2004, I get a call 
and a GI codenamed in the first book um, says, John, this is some crazy man. Uh, one of my streams is flowing great. It's April. We have all this winter runoff, fish, fry, uh, frogs, everything's good. But I got a totally dry stream on one end, all this plastic and junky debris in a dry stream and everything's dead. And that's a, wow. uh, you know, oh crap, what does that mean? And so from a traditional standpoint, I'm thinking is a cattleman diverting water for a cattle operation? Is it an agricultural water diversion? That's typically the stream bed alteration cases, Jack, that we would see on the traditional side. So I put him in the truck, take him to the top of the mountain. We dive deep. Just into you, without a, without a partner, just you and him? Just me and him. That's okay. it. Yeah. In those days, you know, um, if we had a ride along that was savvy and we weren't going into anything that we, you know, um, kind of had a, a, a threat matrix workup like we would operationally now, it didn't have any any clues whatsoever that it would be anything but a typical sedate water diversion. So I throw him in the truck. We go and with that, what do you have on you? Like without being prepared ahead of time, like knowing, hey, we're going into this grow. What do you have on you? What is it just a sidearm or do you have a rifle in the in the truck as well? What are you carrying at this point? Yeah, that that was before we had an official battle rifle, which I'll talk about with you being another, uh, another firearms guy like myself. Um, we were carrying a hodgepodge of stuff as long as we could qualify, get them armor inspected. And I ran an M4. Um, I run an M4, uh, with a Trigicon ACOG on it. Uh, I ran, you know, with, uh, bonded rounds and the five, five, six, knowing that I was going into very brushy terrain and having, you know, hunted all my life with bigger calibers and knowing how these bullets perform. Um, I could kind of pick my ammo at the time. So that was cool. I had the M4, I had my Glock duty pistol, Glock 22, 40 calibers, what we were issued at the time. And, you know, my partner GI, who I'm going in with very savvy and proficient with weapons, Fieldcraft is top notch, second to none in the woods, a lot of hunting time, but he's an unarmed civilian and I can't really have him armed on an operation. So he's a very good asset, but doesn't have a firearm. And okay. we're going to go in here. I've got a radio, I've got a cell phone, but of course we dive into a Canyon. There's no radio coverage. There's no cell service. And wow. we're going straight down a mountain about a thousand feet. And then we get into the Canyon. It's like a pristine grand Canyon of waterway and it's bone dry. And there's the water diversion where they, the cartel guys have built up a check dam They've got a water pipe going down a dry creek and it's kind of follow the rabbit hole. You know, what are you going to find at the end of the end of the pipe? And sure enough, as we stalked carefully and concealed down through that canyon, we started to see, you know, 18 to 24 inch tall marijuana plants on both sides of the creek, all the bank vegetation gone, which is a big environmental problem. Uh, then we started to see, you know, camouflaged encampments and hooches and a kitchen and a cooking area big bags of fertilizer, had no idea at the time, these EPA banned poisons that we started to learn about much later in the game, they were all in there. The carbofuran, the metafos, uh, the nerve agent, you know, that's banned from use in America for any agriculture. Uh, cartels have to smuggle it through the border infiltration or from the oceans and pangas, you know, um, get it in Tijuana. And then we run into two growers and they're in OD green BDUs and they've got their, you know, their cartel monikers uh, embedded and, you know, kind of woven into their belt buckles and uh, they're the patron saint stuff I talk about in Hidden War and, you know, that whole, you know, kind of ideology of what type of culture that uh, encourages as far as environmental destruction and drug crimes and human trafficking. And they've got AKs and they've got machetes and, Jack, no joke. I, you know, I think about all the operations you've done in your career and all the ones I've done on my side of the world. And I have never seen guys that were so protected knowing no one was in the area yet. So situationally aware. Wow. I mean, their field craft was top notch. They would, they would be a two man unit. And as they were tending their plants, they would whisper and not talk 
one would always every couple minutes look over the shoulder and check the six o'clock, check the tail gunner like a tail gunner on a, on a stack, like we would run. And whoever was like chopping plants or tending a water hose, the other one would kind of sit back and just have that situational awareness and be like a cover, a cover guy. Wow. And there's no, so you run into was, these first two guys. Are you like coming around, like come behind a tree and you're like, and you like steering the headlights, you both see each other. No. Or do you see them from a ways <laughs> off or you get the binos out and you're like, like, what was that situation yeah. like? Thankfully it wasn't the, it wasn't the former man. Cause if we had, <laughs> if we had gone eye to eye and uh-huh. knowing, not knowing what, you know, not knowing what I would know later in that situation, it was going to be a gunfight for sure. Did you, and you're on foot. Do you have your M4 with you or do you leave that in the car? Oh no, the M4, as soon as I dive out of it, and as soon as I lose sight of the truck, the rifle goes with me, you know, on on any, and that was before any special operations unit. It's just how we trained our guys and our firearms training was really state of the art. You know, it was keeping up with the best law enforcement. We were getting a lot of stuff back from the sandbox, from you guys on the military side, especially special forces we were training with independently. Um, I had a, I got a lot of training in Southern California when I was down with forest service, starting my career with the third special forces group, you know, which was freaking fantastic. I got to jump in with that opportunity and, and that doesn't normally happen. So it was starting early. And then fast forward to this Silicon Valley drop into this Canyon. Um, we are just hugging the bank, just kind of using field craft. Like we're stalking animals going in real quiet, doing slow peaks, moving slow. And when we got to see them and they had their backs to us and were kind of above us a little bit, but we were in a cut bank in the Creek below them. We hugged the bank, we held tight, you know, we were pieing out real careful. I always carry a tiny pocket pair of binoculars. We love those little Leica, those eight by twenties or those 10 by 22s. It's something I bought for the entire Met team when we formed up the unit. Cause those little binos you can, you know, put up so slowly mm. without being a target indicator, very little movement and peek out and you can really see details. And sure enough, that's when I saw what they were doing. And they were maybe at the time, 50 yards away. They were not far. And we just had to hold position as they started to work our way. And I was waiting for that, you know, here we go moment, ready to go. And just not the situation I wanted to happen with an unarmed civilian with me, no radio coverage. This was going to be a hard one to explain for sure if I went loud. And they got to about 15 yards and they tended some plants very, very close to us. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And then they made that hook and drifted out of the canyon and doubled back. Whoa. So that was an eye opener. And once we got them out <laughs> of the area, I looked at the DI and, and Jack, I just went, all right, man, we got the location marked. We got a ping. Let's get out of here. We kind of did a, a quiet bounding overwatch uphill and out, got to the truck and just had that processing moment when I got to coverage. And then I What's next, man? What does the game warden do in a situation like that? I just saw what I would later learn is the biggest environmental criminal we have in California and now in 25 other states for just the cannabis side of things. Um, Had no idea they were involved in running human trafficking operations all over the country like they do now. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you look at the synthetic fentanyl killing so many people from dirty labs back east. Um, That's all generated by these same cartel groups. It's just a different division of work they do in their business model. Um, the prescription drug, the opiates, the gun running, um, the, the children's sex trafficking, it's all embedded. So we were actually stumbling onto a level of environmental criminal that affected the country on a, a deeper level beyond just wildlife. But we didn't know any of that yet. So yeah. that was the first exposure. And then bringing in a task force of, of uh, drug officers that, you know, focus on that. And now I'm going to just be the advisor because I've never done this. That was the technically the first operation I went on where we did uh, an apprehension attempt, a full eradication of a grow, and then 
Unfortunately, because it wasn't SOPs for the non-conservation guys on the team to actually clean that mess up environmentally and bring the waterway back, uh, we didn't reclimate the growth site, but it was sure an eye-opener. And that that started the direction long-windedly of where I would go next into building Met eventually and getting the right guys and where we're at now. What's up, everyone? This is Jeremy, founder of Ironclad. I just wanted to thank you all for listening to an Ironclad original and helping to bring our shows to the top of the charts. In recent weeks, Reborn with Ashley Horner hit the top 30 in the Apple Podcast Fitness category, and Oil & Whiskey with The Roaster Shop hit top 20 in the automotive section. Also, Success Hotline and Mental Performance Daily have passed the 2 million download mark. And finally, Danger Close with Jack Carr is still crushing it with guests that include Chris Pratt, Tulsi Gabbard, Tokyo Vice author Jake Adelstein, Grayman creator Mark Greeny, and more. Check out Ironclad Shows wherever you get your podcast. Cameron Haynes. Cam is a bow hunter, endurance athlete, and author. His new New York Times bestselling book, Endure, How to Work, Outlast, and Keep Hammering, is a memoir that tells the story of how a passion for hunting inspired a lifestyle dedicated to fitness, distance running, and backcountry adventure. Here's Cam. You talk about something that is very unique to you uh, that you've shared once on social media, and I was one of the few that caught it. Um, before you took it down and you talk about it in here and that's counting coup. And mm-hmm. I met, it was by two years ago. And I, I remember that I watched it. I went back to watch it again. Cause I still remember what you wrote under there. And it's two oh, okay. years later. Um, yeah. and I remember you took it down. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, took that thing down, but it was, it was, and you, you wrote in there, um, you know, that you don't usually share this, but this is what you do. Like it's, it, this is yeah. like what you do and it's not like a one-time thing and, but you don't usually share it and you shared it. Right. And then someone in the book, you explain why, you took it down. Someone called you and, and, and you talked about it. Um, but can you explain counting coup and what that means to you? Because I think it's, uh, I mean, it's so powerful and so unique to you. Um, but, and that you shared that, that stood out to me. I, 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 yeah. I haven't forgotten oh. it. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, counting coup is kind of a native American thing and they would do it with their enemies. They, if they could get in and instead of kill the enemy, put their hands on them and, a key for the native Americans would be like their, their enemy. They might lock eyes and realize I could be dead, but I'm not. And so that was counting coup one tribe against another. It would be an example. And then if they did that, then they would put an Eagle feather on the staff. If they tried to count coup ended up getting injured, that Eagle feather would be dipped in red and still on their staff. So it was like, it was like this form of bravery or respect or, um, I guess that'd be the best way to describe it. But uh, to me, it's like I wanted to get to an animal that I killed and be there when it's life left and just show my respect because, and, and not hunters have a hard time with this, but how much we respect these animals in the country and, and everything involved in the hunt is, it's, it's in our DNA and it's what makes me who I am. But so I've, you know, killed a few bear um, and as I run the arrow through them, they take off. And if I can get there before they die and touch them and be with them as that life leaves to me, that's like, I'm giving my respect to an animal I killed. And I'm, I'm, I've told him on that video, like, I think that you saw is like, it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, sorry, but this is what I do and you can go now. And, uh, it's, um, people would probably would even hunters might have a hard time with that. So Wayne who owns the bow rack here, He's the one who called me and I know he's in my corner and he said, 
I'm worried about how this might be perceived, you know, and I thought I tried to explain it, everything that it meant to me in the words, but still it's like, so, you know, bears sometimes do death moans. So, uh, when you hit them in the lungs and they're dying, they'll do a death moan, which sounds pretty haunting in the, in the woods. And so all that wrapped up in a, in a hunter chasing a wounded animal and, and touching him and saying those words and the bear death moaning, it was, it's intense. But to me, that power is like, we kill to, we kill to survive every day. I mean, every, every human life out there, there's death associated with it. So to me, it's just like accepting that and also honoring it and honoring that animal for giving this life to me. Um, but people who don't realize that their existence costs, you know, costs lives, they don't understand that. But yeah, that's, that's a point to County Q to me. Yeah, no, it's so powerful. And I think, I, I don't even think you knew that it was being filmed on that one. I think somebody like, uh, Johnny was running behind you, maybe, or somebody yeah. was running behind you, videoing it and gave yeah. it to you after. So right. it was, right. no, I never said, yeah. I never said, Hey, let's film this. Yeah. I think you said that in the, in that, I mean, it's two years ago. I still remember that, uh, yeah. in, in what you wrote there, um, which makes it even right. more powerful. Um, once again, that being authentic piece. Um, but that was, yeah. And I, and I love that you explain it in here. It's just, yeah, it, it's amazing. And, um, speaking of the anti-hunter stuff, you know, you do talk about it in here and we can leave that for, uh, for people that pick up the book. Cause obviously we're hunters. Um, yeah. but a couple of things you say in here about that, uh, one line, another line that stood out to me was that, uh, when was the last time a hunter threatened in, uh, an anti-hunter's life? Uh, yeah. and it happens to you, I don't know, daily, uh, yeah, it does. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, it goes back to that. I don't think they understand life and death and, and respect life. So hunters, they understand that connection. They're not going to threaten. They're not going to make a threat like that because we understand what death means. You know, I mean, we've seen it, we've been around it. They don't, they, they're like not really in reality. They're in this, this fantasy land where nothing dies. Everybody's happy. I, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how they think, but so to them threatening death isn't, isn't that big of a deal, but yeah, I mean, hunters don't do it. Cause we, we get that connection. Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought of it in those terms before. So when you wrote that in here, I, I, I was really, you know, that was enlightening uh, for me. And I've read a lot of these things and thought about these things a lot. So I really liked how you did that. And then you talk about the, uh, the supermarket hitman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's So they go, people buy steaks and hamburger and chicken and everything else. And that, you know, it's, it's just cellophane wrapped meat. So you're not really thinking about the animal mm -hmm. that died, to put that there. So essentially people who go and they buy those, those meat products, they're paying a, a hitman to do the killing for them. They're still killing, but they're just trading money. They're trading money for that death. And uh, so it's, you know, we don't get out of here without, without, uh, you know, there's their death associated with, even if it's just living in this house, because, you know, there's wood here, uh, whatever animals were living here where this house was built, uh, driving on the roads, displacing animals, killing animals. So it's like, you can't get away from it. It's just, you need to accept it. And, uh, it's, uh, that's hard for some people. Oh yeah. I mean, talk about wheat fields, you know, cornfields. I mean, it's, uh, it's yeah. amazing how people can go through life totally oblivious to that because there is not that connection to the land, the animals that inhabit it anymore. Now we can go to the grocery store. We can call 911. If someone's breaking into your, into your home, you don't have to yeah. pick up a weapon to defend yourself. And it's only for a very slim part of human history has this been possible. And, yeah. uh, no. COVID in 2020 maybe made some people think that, Oh, society is not maybe as stable as I thought. Um, right. and, uh, hopefully people took some, some, uh, some steps to be more self-reliant, more prepared. Uh, I think a lot of people did, uh, get, get into hunting or, or reconnect with some of those roots or reconnect with that, that DNA and that blood that's flowing through their veins. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, society is, is certainly fragile and it's only been 
like for the instant of human history where we've been able to to not be good at the hunting and not be good at the fighting. Um, yeah, but it, oh, we're uh, pretty spoiled right now. We are very spoiled, very comfortable. Uh, yeah, very comfortable. Right. Yeah, you, you talk about being comfortable and uncomfortable in here. I love that chapter yeah. as well. And uh, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have to get to work, but there's a couple of things I wanted <laughs> to touch on. And one is, yeah. uh, is Joe Rogan saying there's enough cake for everyone. I love yeah, how you wove that I in. Know. I know it's, it's so true. It's like, he was the first one who really walked the walk in that regard where I say, as I said earlier, men are competitive and sometimes, you know, some men will take another success as like a slight of, of their, their own achievements. Well, Joe, you know, maybe he saw that, or maybe he is a discussion, but he just said, he goes, you know, there's enough cake for everybody. You can win. They can win. Everybody can have cake. And I was just like, man, and he, he exemplifies that because he's been my biggest cheerleader. Actually, you know, um, what I've told him is like, I wish I believed in myself as much as you believe in me, you know? And that's true because I don't, but he's like the ultimate cheerleader. And so it's kind of, it's, it's, um, that always stuck with me where, when he said there's enough cake for everybody, we can, we can all succeed. You know, your success doesn't have to cost somebody else. Exactly. Especially, especially in this country. Um, but I love how you wove that in. And then, uh, I wanted to ask you to share a, a story about, uh, Roy's buck because Roy, obviously you talk about him on, on social channels. Your, your mm-hmm. friendship is, uh, uh, I mean, what an incredible friendship you guys had. Um, but the Roy's buck, like I got emotional reading that chat. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was gonna get emotional reading endure. You know, I thought we we're gonna be <laughs> running through the woods and, uh, you know, yeah. hunting and all. And then, uh, that story yeah. got like, really, really got me. Um, what was that, uh, you know, getting that call and then going out the next morning and, and finding that buck. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, the, what I say is I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it wasn't for Roy. It was Roy's one who introduced me to bow hunting. Roy was, uh, he was a big, he was always like a, a very strong Christian and never wavered. And he would just have a positive impact on me. He always believed in me, had a positive impact on me from not only introducing me to bow hunting, but through our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, when I got that call where he had fallen and, you know, my wife called and said, uh, um, you need to call Jill, which is Roy's wife. And, uh, Roy had an accident. So I, I called her and I said, what's going on? She just, she said, Roy's not coming home. And, uh, he'd been up sheep hunting and fell. And at that time I had that night, that evening, I hit a buck and I hit a buck a little low and a little back big white tail in Colorado. And so I didn't want to push it. So we backed out and I figured, you know, I, I got liver back there and, you know, it's going to go a little ways and die. And, but I didn't want to push it because animals can be very tough. And, uh, so it was in the middle of the night. It's like, or not in the middle of the night, but at like 11 when I got that call, I couldn't sleep all night. You know, Roy, you know, it was clear that he had died. He was laying up there. There was a guy with him and could see him. He, he'd fallen 700 feet. And it was, you know, it was clear that, that, uh, he had died. And so that's all I was thinking about all night is, you know, that Roy was gone and, uh, it was, it was hard. And, um, so I'm like, we went to look for this deer and couldn't find it, couldn't find blood, couldn't find anything. So we spread out and I was like, you know, just tears streaming down my face all morning, just kind of felt fruitless out there looking around. And these is Eastern Colorado. So big, big, like, uh, there's, uh, kind of like wheat fields or, uh, 
uh, different crops out there and uh, CRP and um, Milo is, is what they, they eat out there too. So it just seems like expansive and seems like, you know, mission impossible to find this deer. Anyway, we ended up finding it and I feel like Roy, um, you know, I wanted to find it. I wanted to have something positive. I wanted to have, you know, I felt like he was watching down on us and there's me and Kip folks again, and some other guys and we found this deer. So then that, to me, that's, that's Roy's buck. And it's, I mean, Roy's buck is sitting right here in the, in the dining room right now. And it's just that white, that white tailed deer that I found the night after he'd fallen. And, uh, it was a really hard time. I mean, if I, if I think about it too much, it's still, I mean, it impacts me. I mean, I, I have the tattoo on us of our last hunt right here on my arm. That's Roy there. And this is the moose I killed. And, uh, you know, it, the impact he had on me is, uh, changed my life. Yeah. And like I said, I wouldn't be here without him. Yeah. Robbie Kroger. Robbie is the founder of blood origins, an organization that brings together storytelling and conservation. Their mission statement is simple. Convey the truth about hunting. Here's Robbie. Gosh, for me, you know, it's so important to have that connection with the land and we're losing that. Um, especially when it comes to our uh, policymakers, our elected representatives, um, we're just losing that connection. And actually back in the fifties, Dwight D. Eisenhower, he said, uh, uh, he said, farming looks pretty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Um, and, uh, it's just what that really means, not just for farming, but for anything that you're disconnected from, but it's so interesting that we're at a point in our history where we can be so disconnected from the very thing that keeps us alive. Uh, so it is very, very strange to have that, uh, to, to be at this stage as a, as a, as a society, um, where that can be the case because it couldn't have been the case for much of, uh, our time as, uh, as human beings, just this very, very slim size. Same thing with outsourcing protection for yourself and your family. Call 911 in a civilized society. You don't need to learn how to protect yourself. You don't, well, okay. <laughs> so this tiny little sliver of, of human history, I don't even think it's true, but you think it's true. Whereas for the rest of human history, you knew that was not true. You had to step up to defend your life, your loved one's lives, your tribe, and you had to put food on that table. You had to learn how to farm. You had to be connected to it. Um, so getting out there with kids, especially, uh, teaching them how to be connected to that, to that land and to the things that keep them alive. I think there's, there's not much more important, uh, than, and it gets them away from these devices. We get away from these 100%. devices. We get away from <laughs> tweeting and Instagram and all the rest of it. Nothing's, that's why I, I love getting out there in places that don't have Wi-Fi, don't have cell service and, uh, try to do that at least a, a few times a year with, uh, with the kids. But, um, so what, so coming back to why you started this in the first place, um, oh, one other thing, uh, it is yeah. very interesting that the very people oftentimes that haven't put the requisite time, energy and effort into studying the issues. Um, let's take, uh, let's take lion hunting in Africa. It's so controversial mm -hmm. and it sounds, I mean, you see a picture, it's, you know, you watch the lion King, all that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, and then over lattes in New York and Los Angeles, you can, uh, you'll pat yourself and your friends on your back because you saved these lions. Well, then when you actually fly over there and what do you see? You see the people there poisoning lions, snaring lions, uh, cause now they have no value. They're killing crops. They can kill family member. Um, so now mm -hmm. they have, so in, it sounds great. 
and you think mm-hmm. that you've done a great thing, banning lion hunting. Okay, well, guess what? Now you've killed uh, female lions, male lions, ch- the babies, all of them killed. And I saw the pictures when I went over there to, to Mozambique, just poisoned lions, snared lions, and uh, it's just, it's ugly. So they did the exact opposite of what they were trying to do, which right. uh, which is tough. But if you don't well, it, it's, study it's, it, you don't know that you just, you just wiped out a ton of lions by trying to save them. Well, from a, from a hunting perspective and the banning component, it makes sense. Think about it. It does in their minds, right? Stop hunting means you don't kill anything. You're saving wildlife. Okay. Yes. Technically you're right. However, when you bring in the idea of value, you bring in the idea of that thing now not having value any longer. So why do you want to keep it around? If it's taking goats, if it's taking cattle, if it's bothering humans, you won't want it around. So you're going to do, to your point, you're going to get rid of it mm-hmm. in whatever mechanism means you possibly can. And for the most part, all of those means and mechanisms are cruel and violent, and they don't really give us stuff on how that thing dies. Yeah. And result, dead animal. Um, it's, uh, it's tough. And then it's very interesting that a lot of those same people, the first people to call the exterminator when there's some uh, cockroaches in the house or a mice infant, you know, <laughs> So that's interesting as well. Um, like, yeah, there, there are cockroaches in my apartment. Or I saw a mouse in my apartment. Quick, call, you know, call the exterminator. Let's kill that thing. Uh, that's, it's, it's very interesting, the dynamic. But that's why I think, gosh, we got to just study and read uh, and put in the time before you make a snap mm-hmm. judgment um, based off someone else's tweet uh, where they also didn't study, study the issue. But, uh, but circling back around to why you started this in the beginning, um, to want to explain to your kids why we hunt. So along this journey, what do you, what do, what do you tell them now after having been, uh, de- having developed blood origins, grown it into what you mm-hmm. have, having mm-hmm. studied this, um, having been out there becoming a hunter. And now what do you tell your, your kids when they ask you now, uh, dad, why do we hunt? I think the answer is, is, is complicated and simple at the same time in that you can hunt for very different reasons and there's many of them. Um, but you develop that reason. And when you develop it, you understand the why, i.e. you may hunt because you enjoy organic meat, right? Coming from the field, you know exactly who touched it, you know where it comes from, you know how it died, the whole cooking wheel. That is a why someone may hunt. Mm-hmm. Another why may be tied to population control, that you, you want to make sure that there's this, a balanced population in a certain area in different, kind, you know, different parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, as well as here in the US. Uh, maybe you hunt because you truly value the conservation element of it, right? And you value the money that goes back. There's not many people that do it, but there are certain people that do do it that way. Or you hunt because you're seeking adventure and you're seeking places that you potentially would never have gone to because of hunting. And you are seeking meeting different people and cultures and understanding that. Or you hunt because you do enjoy the sparring that is essentially you versus mother nature, you versus that wily animal that's on the mountain and you're wanting to outwit it, outsmart it. And essentially sort of reverse yourself back to where we essentially came from. Like what is in our blood? What is in our DNA, our blood origins, which is 
chasing and hunting as we used to as, you know, 200, 400, 500 years ago, 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago. Um, in that you, you're, not the, you're not the alpha out there. Yes, you're a predator, but everything is against you. So there's many, many different whys for why you want to go hunting. Um, I do not think that it is an acceptable answer. So when they say, well, dad, we just like to kill things. I said, I don't think that's a very acceptable answer because the statistics are not there that will, that show that when someone hunts and by definition, hunting is chasing and seeking and failure inherently wrapped around those two, um, those two things. Killing is, is almost is this thing that is like a given. So go down to the local abattoir and you can kill all you want or volunteer there or go get a job at, you know, pulling the punch gun uh, when cows come into the abattoir. Um, so that's what I would say to my kids. Um, that's what I'd say to a lot of people. And I think, again, the hunting community needs to understand that people hunt for various reasons. And some people hunt for that trophy, and that's okay. Some people hunt for food, that's okay. Some people hunt for adventure, that's okay. It's all tied to personal preference. But as long as you're being responsible, as long as you are acting in the right manner to give us a good name, give us a good image, and um, nobody should ever have an issue with you. Brad Leone. In addition to being a popular chef, Brad Leone is also an avid outdoorsman who merges his passions in his new best-selling book, Field Notes for Food Adventure, Recipes and Stories from the Woods to the Ocean. Brad is known for his wildly popular online series on Bon Appetit's YouTube channel. It's alive with Brad, and it's alive going places. Here's Brad. What's been your experience with, uh, with that, with hunting and with, uh, with, with talking to people about it and introducing them to, to hunting or yeah. starting that conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think hunting got like a bad reputation, you know, and had a bad voice for a while. Um, and, you know, I think there are, there were a lot of bandits probably out there and there probably still are who you know, aren't, you know, aren't going by the rules and regulations and aren't in it for, you know, the respect, but I know damn well, a good percentage of them are and some of the best people I know. Uh, especially when it comes to taking care of the planet and having respect for animals and just being overall humble, kind, beautiful people tend to be, in my opinion, a lot of them are hunter and fishermen and just outdoorsmen. Um, you know, it's, it's a religion for a lot of people in a church, you know, and, and I can relate to that. Uh, and then being able to tie it into food. I mean, yeah, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's, it's, it's ancient, you know, it, it's way more embedded in it than, than we want. And, you know, unless you're, Unless you're growing your own almonds and 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 milking them somewhere and and, and <laughs> you know and I don't know growing tomatoes and you know walking around your tiptoes and not crushing any ants or you know what I'm saying like yeah. where do we where do we stop you know what I mean and like so I, I don't know and like for me there's a major contradiction in it because like I'm gonna jump around a little bit sorry but yeah. like when did we start like who gave okay like why do we just how come no one gives a shit about plants. You can eat the shit out of them. That, that life, that that life in in this universe doesn't doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, you can chomp away on anything when as long as it's you know 
and I understand there's different, you know, they take different nervous systems and, and what we deem intelligent uh, life forces and life, you know, but like, as we're finding out, you know, and our, you know, big cocky human brains is that plants and fungus and fish and other species are super intelligent, you know, and like, I'm okay with eating all of them, you know, but like, you gotta, cause that's just, I don't, there isn't a better system yet. You know what yeah. I mean? Like we haven't, we haven't figured, I don't know. And I think at the end of the day, no one wants factory farming except for the prick doing it and making money. You know what I mean? Like, so like, you know, people, and the responses I've gotten from being able to do some hunting, like pheasant hunting and, and wild boar in Hawaii and, um, and fishing is like, it's a respect and it's just being transparent. Like this is, if you're going to the supermarket and you're getting your ribeye or your salmon filet from the Faroe islands or whatever, you're just not seeing the, you know, come on, like it's all, you know, it's just a, a little clean piece and, you know, no face anymore, no feathers, no nothing. This is happening on a massive scale. We, we you know, 400 million pigs a year or whatever, you know, you fact check that number, but like, you know, it's, it's massive. So like being able to harvest an animal, whether you're farming it yourself and just being the accountability for what's going into it, you know, because, you know, as, as we found out, the industrialization of the food system uh, certainly had some flaws and, uh, and not the best interest for our uh, health. Uh, it seems in some of the aspects, you know, uh, is hunting going to solve world hunger? No, obviously not, you know, but, but good practicing and localization of it. Uh, and, you know, COVID showed that too, how fragile that big monopolized systems are, you know, and, and cyber attacks, like things need to get a little more smaller and, and less monopolized in, in certain aspects when it comes to food. Right. Uh, and that also will be able to reduce the environmental impact and overall health, I believe. And, you know, you go into the supermarket and look at some of the the produce and the meat and, and like, we're unfortunate, don't get me wrong, that it's an option. And, you know, financially is another thing. Good food's expensive, especially when you're buying it at a supermarket, you know? Um, so there's a lot of problems with it, but like, I guess to wrap that question up in a way, like, yeah, I think just no one, the way it's been perceived is just like, yeah, no one wants the bad, the bad practice. You know, everyone's sick of it. You know, let's just, let's just figure a better way out. There seems like a lot of people who are, smarter at it and better at it than me that certainly are doing it. It's just, I don't know. I guess it's a big problem. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, COVID did open a few people's eyes for sure into how fragile society can actually be. Um, and, and most of the world obviously deals with that, you know, here we're, we're insulated yeah. from, from a lot of that, uh, uh, having worrying about the next, the next meal, malaria, like all these things, uh, that most of the rest of the world has to worry about. We're, know fairly fairly insulated in this country and also makes it yeah, part of the process die, people dying of starvation all i mean a lot of people i mean uh, in the world you know every year and like how much we waste what it's like 40 or something percent of all food or something it's like it's wild yeah. you know? it's, it's just, insane yeah there was what was it a book or like three or four years ago a book or a video movie i forget what it was but uh just talking about how much waste there is and that's the other part about hunting like when we put uh, an elk on the table out there there's nothing's wasted because we right. know where it came from and how much work went in. And that's the other part of it. Once you do it, I think, once you're out there and you're doing it and you're bringing that food back and you're processing it and then you're cooking it, you're doing all those things, you're you're not wasting any of it. And then for me, it is a shock just actually how inexpensive some things are at the supermarket, like knowing how much went in to what we just did with a mule deer right. or an elk or a moose or whatever it yeah. might be. And then seeing, you know, $1.99 or, you know, $5.99. Like, amazing that it's, for me anyway, I'm like, how 
you had to raise that thing. You had to do all this. You had to transport it. You had to put it on a shelf. You're paying all these people at each one of those stages to get it there. And I was like, wow, why is this only five bucks? I mean, it's crazy they, just how much goes into making yeah. that happen. That's because they process it like a grain. You know, it's just, it's, it's a numbers thing. And it's, a, it's so scaled that they can sell you this big, giant, weird pork loin that's as white as a piece of paper when you cook it and has, you know, uh, almost no fat on it. It's just like this big, you know, weird, like that's, that's not what a pig looks like. You know, like I've seen some really healthy pigs, whether wild or, or, or farmed and like, man, that sometimes it can, it can look like steak, you know, like I can get nice and red and pink and beautiful fat on it. So, I mean, yeah, once you, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm once you see the light, I, I can't go back. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, don't you, you know, I'm being able to, uh, and the, where I live is great, man. I mean, I, I shot two deer this year um, and, you know, not even hunting that aggressively. And, um, you know, a bunch of geese and uh, some, you know, and we got some pheasant and, you know, some, uh, some tuna. We go fishing right here and spear fishing and, you know, sea bass and being able to just, process that with a, with some friends and then being able to grow vegetables and stuff. I mean, I'm, I just moved up here, but in the next couple of years, man, I want to get this place where we could be, you know, providing a lot of the food that we need through, you know, just growing, you know, we get great sun and soil. Like it'd be crazy, not good water. Um, and then having the ocean in the land, it's just such a, you know, it reminds me of like friends in Hawaii, right. They just have that like ocean and land that they can, you know, really get dialed in and provide off of. John Barklow. John is a former U.S. Navy diver who spent the majority of his time in uniform in the SEAL teams, where we met back in 1997 at SEAL Team 5. Upon retirement, he took the lead instructor position at the Naval Special Warfare Cold Weather Training Facility in Kodiak, Alaska, where he honed his hunting and survival skills, developing and testing gear for special operators working in harsh environments. He's currently the big game product manager at Sitka Gear in Bozeman, Montana. Here's John. When did you get to that point where you're like, okay, uh, I've done what I can here in, in Kodiak. This has been a good run. And now it's time to, now it's time to move on. Cause you had a solid run there. And I mean, I can't think of anybody who had more of an influence on Naval special warfare, uh, mountaineering warfare tactics gear than, than you did during that time frame. Um, what was the, what did, what made you want to move on? I mean, you had a long run there. So it wasn't like you just did a couple of years and moved on. Like you were all in up there and yeah. it's awesome to see how things evolved and see your impact on the community. But, uh, but what, what was, uh, what, what moved you on to the next stage in life? I, I just think realizing that I had done everything I wanted to do and, yeah. and a lot more. Uh, we had just got done writing, um, I forget what it was, but basically the TTPs for cold mm -hmm. weather warfare. Um, and, and quite frankly, I mean, at a certain point you can't keep up with the young guys. Like I was able to keep up cause my, my, uh, my skill set was so much higher that I could, I could rely on that. Um, but you know, once I went past 40 and, and, and a couple years past that, I just realized that not only was I, you know, kind of lost half a step, I'd done everything I wanted to do, but quite frankly, it was time for other people to kind of take the reins. And that's the only way things advance, right? Because if not, then it's going to be me and my mindset and this is the way we do it. Now I don't ever want to be that guy. And so I had to really put the ego in check and go, all right, it's time to move on. This, this was going to come to an end at some point anyways. I'd rather leave on my own terms than someone else's. Um, and so I really started to think about that. And I would tell you, if, you know, to be honest, 
uh, probably two years prior to me actually retiring and moving on, um, I, I knew I was, I was ready to go, yeah. but I'm a person that wants to, you know, I definitely want to have a plan, Oh yeah. uh, at least a direction to go. And so that's kind of when I started saying, you know, what do I like to do? I wanted something I was going to be passionate about because mm-hmm. for 26 years, I'd been passionate about every single day waking up and the guys I work with, and I knew it wasn't yeah. going to be the same, but I wanted something that was kind of the civilian equivalent if I could get it. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted, uh, to work in an industry where people enjoyed themselves and, and kind of had, you know, some fun. And so hunting seemed, it was either hunting or the mountaineering Avenue. I wanted to go, um, hunting seemed to be the better fit for me at the time. And, uh, literally I remember sitting straight up in bed from a dead sleep at like two in the morning. And the thought went through my head, go to work for Sitka gear. Nice. I, I had no, I didn't know anybody there. I had no, I had no, uh, nobody in the hunting industry I could reach out to. And, and all of it, I just said, that's, that, that is what I need to do. And, uh, so I just kind of, you know, starting to collect and get all my stuff in order to kind of drop my papers and leave. And, uh, I get a email from a guy at, at Gore. So the, the military side of Gore used to come up cause we were a schoolhouse and they would run things by us like, Hey, try this or Hey, try that. Or does this have any interest? And they had some really stupid stuff. (laughs) Um, some of it was good, but a lot of it was crazy. Like trying to swim in a, so imagine a dry suit, like our mass suit Uh with like a bunch of the, you know, like a Turkey suit with like Uh a bunch of, Oh geez. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, you guys want to put that on and go swim in the ocean? Like you're going to drown. Like this is a dumb idea. Anyways. (laughs) So one of those guys reached out and said, Hey, he had no idea I was retiring. Mm. He said, Hey, do you, uh, do you realize there's a job at Sitka and, and Gore was, uh, Gore acquired Sitka. He said, I think you'd be perfect for the job. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So I applied and I'm like getting, I'm really getting close to my window of getting out, like within a couple months, mm-hmm. still nothing solid. I was going to move back to Salt Lake. I had a home there. I had some family there. So I had a fall, you know, that's where I was going. I knew that. And, uh, anyways, I go through the process, great interview. And they said, uh, they said, the answer is not no, it's just not now. Well, what I didn't realize was the job I was applying for, which was this big game product manager. Um, it it didn't exist until just a few months prior when they were restructuring the company. And so I was going to be the first one. And the person who I was kind of taking the reins from was the founder of the company, our mutual friend, Jonathan. So of course, try to fill those shoes. Right. Um, so that was kind of, so anyways, they went through this long deal. I end up, uh, I end up leaving Alaska, move to Salt Lake, get a job at beyond clothing with my dear friend, Rick Elder doing some really cool specialized stuff for Mm -hmm. some, you know, different units. And I, and I was enjoying it, but I knew it was not going to be, you know, the ultimate thing I wanted to do. And, and sh- sure enough, uh, Sitka calls back or the hiring people call back and they're like, Hey, you know, you said to keep us on your short list and that you were, you know, always available to talk. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Well, the founder wants to talk to you. Would you be willing to talk to him? So I talked to him. I was in Seattle at the time and there's going to be a backstory to this. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, I talked to Jonathan on the phone and he's like, Hey man, we want to bring you out to Bozeman to interview. I go out there, uh, my first real job interview, like ever in my life. Right. So I show up there 
big, like eight hour long interview process. I'm in the Bozeman airport drinking Willie's whiskey. Like it's going out of style. Wondering if I screwed it up and my one chance to ever work for the company was gone, you know? And, uh, and Jonathan called me, you know, I'd been out of the office two hours and he called me, he said, do you really, do you really want this job? Like, you really know what you're getting yourself into? And I said, I want the job. I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. And he goes, fair enough. And so that's how, you know, basically I got the job. Well, what I didn't realize, Jack, is that you and Jonathan are friends. And the way Jonathan tells the story anyways, that you and he are riding a chairlift out of probably Tahoe somewhere, Squaw. Yeah, uh, Squaw. I think we're Alpine because Squaw might have been, anyway, Squaw or Alpine. I think it was Alpine that day. And I don't know if you asked the question or however my name came up and yeah. Jonathan realized that you and I knew each other and we had worked together. And that's literally what got me the phone call with Jonathan and ultimately the job. So I owe you oh. my job <laughs> and my net, my, my current career. Seriously. It's oh, all man. about who, you know, right. And, and as you know, like in, in our previous world, and I would say even in life now in general for everybody, like reputation is everything hard to get easy to lose. Um, but no, I, I owe you that. And yeah. I think I've told you that story before, yeah. but I'm like, you've got to be kidding me how all this you know, comes together. So yeah, I've been doing that almost seven years now. And, Crazy. uh, oh, so yeah. cool. No, I remember and, it so and, well. And loving and, it. Uh, I remember that so well, cause I <laughs> built up all this leave up until through my last deployment to, uh, to, uh, to Iraq. And that would be the last one that I would actually tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield. And after that was my troop commander tour. And after that, you know, it's, uh, it's admin. And for those listening, like, yeah, it sounds very impressive. You weren't when, too psyched about that. <laughs> I was not. I, I, uh, I remember you weren't too psyched about that. And I was lucky that I had those enlisted years because uh, I was creeping up on 20 at the time anyway. Um, so same thing as with you. I had that couple years to take a breath, to look around, to, to study, think about transition, figure out that, hey, uh, aligning passion and mission together in the post-military chapter of life is uh, of vital importance, uh, and maybe something you should put some thought into. Uh, and so, so I, so I was very lucky that I had that, that time to do that. But point being, I had accumulated quite a few days of leave over the previous, uh, 17, 18 years. And I started taking that when I got to, uh, to buds and as, uh, as the, uh, the COO and, and, uh, started taking that leave with my family because the pendulum was on the side of the team for all those other years. Yeah. And I decided to get back, uh, to, that I was going to get out and move on and pursue this passion for, for writing this next dream. And so I started taking leave and started going to the mountains with the kids and meeting up with Jonathan up in Tahoe and that sort of thing. So yeah, I remember distinctly we we're on the chairlift. I met him at, uh, I think it was, I think Squaw was closed for some reason or for whatever reason we ended up going to Alpine. And, uh, and we're on that chairlift and we're just talking about uh, transition and future and how things are going at Sitka and what I'm thinking about as I get ready to get out and all that sort of thing. And, uh, he's like, Hey, do you know this, this, uh, John Barklow guy? Uh, and I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and he's like, yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking about him for a position and or something along those lines. And I was like, snatch that guy up right now. Jim Shockey. Jim is an award-winning outdoor writer, wildlife photographer, videographer, naturalist, wilderness guide, filmmaker, and outfitter. He's the host of Jim Shockey's Hunting Adventures, The Professionals, Uncharted, and Shock Therapy on the Outdoor Channel. Here's Jim. So when did you make this transition then to uh, becoming an outfitter or did you apprentice first? And did you have to go through this Canada, have that 
kind of the, the, a guide program where you work your way up kind of like a, a Canada or a uh, Alaska has those uh, apprenticeship program or not programs, but the years you have to spend at these different levels. How did, how did that transition from doing this art and selling this art transition well, into becoming an outfit? Well, well, I had, I had three stores in Vancouver, antique stores, art stores and folk art interiors was the name. And I, I, uh, in between, you know, the slow days and there were slow days, I started writing. So this would have been 1984. I, I wrote my first hunting article and, and, and always my intention from a young age has been in the hunting industry. I didn't know if I'd be, you know, Bill Jordan selling camo patterns or, or t-shirts. I didn't know. I just wanted to be in the outdoor, you know, hunting, fishing industry somehow. Um, thank goodness. I didn't know about mountain climbing back then being born in Saskatchewan. I, I'm telling you, I would have been, the, the 14,000 uh, or the, the 14,000 meter peaks or what are they? Um, well, you've done, I mean, it looks like you've done quite a bit of that type of thing, especially if people go back and watch, uh, watch some of the, the uncharted stuff. Yeah. Um, but, um, oh my goodness. But I, I would, uh, I, you know, I, those draw me like a, a moth to a flame. I would have died on the mountain. I, I, cause to me, unlike Ed Beaster's, you know, it said, you know, it's, what is it? Imperative. Getting to the top is optional. Getting down is, <laughs> but uh, you know, I didn't live my life like that. It was, you know, no attaining the goal was imperative yeah. and then figure out a way to get home. If you have to jump, you jump, you know, but I would have died. So I'm glad I didn't know about that, but I, I did, uh, I started writing for hunting magazines back in 1984 as I was doing the, uh, ethnocentric art and, yeah, you can you go get old Country Living magazines. Nineteen eighty four, actually, I dabbled in modeling as well. Was, there you go. That's in the in the book. There we go. Vogue magazine. You can look it up. Nineteen eighty four September. There, you know. That's amazing. In the same jacket that you describe in there. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. that's incredible. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just like like you know back to what we were talking about earlier. You get one life, so so why not, why not live the life that you were destined to live? Not a life that someone else tells you you have to live or should live or for whatever reason, you know, I'm a doctor son. So you got to be a doctor. No, you don't. You know, my dad was a road construction superintendent and and a heavy duty mechanic. I'm sure his, and, and a pilot that he had to stop flying when he got married because he couldn't afford, you know, to actually fly his own airplane. So, wow. so he, um, he gave that up. You know, he, I, yeah, I mean, he read every single airplane magazine that ever existed and had to live vicariously through a, you know, a 49 cent magazine and, and listen to the airplanes talk on his little, I don't know, VHF, whatever yeah, channel they're on. And, and, you know, but he, he couldn't fly, you know, didn't have the money, had to raise kids and, you know, bought one gun in his life that got stolen eventually out of my safe in our ranch. But anyway, that's another story. You get, you get, you get one life. So, you know, live it, live it. I, I say, you know, people are afraid of, of failing, you know, afraid of, well, I, I don't know if I can do that. And then what if I fail? You know, I, and I say, if, if you spend your whole life sitting on a couch at home, worried about what might happen, nothing ever will. That'll be it. That'll be it. Your entire life will be on that couch. Nothing happened. You know, good job. You know, you got to get out there and, and try things. And to me, I've I've never been afraid to try. <laughs> I've suffered the slings and arrows. You know, it doesn't really hurt that bad. It's like 
you don't like me really, you know, I'm, I'm no less a person because I fail. If that novel never gets published, you know, it won't be, it won't be because I'm a lesser, I'm not, I don't take that person. I know how good it is. Yeah. I know how good I am. I know what I've done. So, so that's what, when you live your life true to who you are, you you never have a regret ever. I can't even imagine being on my deathbed and, Oh, you know, there was one thing I wish. No, no, there's nothing. And you you loved it. You know, you know, you know, I mean, I don't know if they're in the thousands, hundreds, you know, lots of people that, that uh, live that same thing. Yeah. And And it's, that's when you can look somebody in the eye, anybody in the eye and say, yeah, I'm your equal. You know, there's nobody better. There may, you know, you, we, equal, yes, but nobody better. And, you know, it sounds arrogant, but it's not. It's just, it's just, you know who you are. And, and you know, this is the best I can be. And, and that's how I've always lived my life. Uh, fearlessly and, and, uh, and, and as honestly, truthfully with honor. I mean, all those, those good things, you know. Yeah, that is, that is amazing. That is amazing. And I know we're, we're coming up on time. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I love what you just said right there. So I might want to finish it off on, on that because like you said, so many people just for whatever reason, they, they do spend time thinking about that failure and worried about that failure and not getting off that, not giving it a shot and not knowing that, hey, these failures are going to make build this character that I can then turn future, future, I can turn that into wisdom going forward. And then I can pass along these lessons to my kids so that we all get better and, and get stronger as, as a family, as a society, and we keep moving forward. Um, so that's, for me, that's kind of the, uh, I don't know, when I look at what's going on out there today, and I look at our, our three kids here and, uh, and all the distractions that they have in the, the world that they're, even if they're, you know, we're shielding, I mean, it's not really shielding because it's, they're getting these inputs uh, all the time, all day, every day from the devices to the teachers, to wearing masks, to just seeing people in masks um, and all that sort of thing. It's just a, a, it's a strange kind of feeling that's out there in the air. And so I always try to encourage people to get into pages of books, get into like this one right here, this amazing book that you wrote right here. We're going to talk about, we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to get this out there because it's so special. It's so incredible. Um, but I encourage everybody to get in the pages of these novels, get in the pages of, of these books put the requisite time, energy, and effort into the study of history so that we can make good decisions for future generations. Because we live, both of us live in countries where people sacrifice so much so we could have these freedoms and these options and opportunities that we do. Um, and whether it was uh, in our families or if it was uh, people we didn't even know for the most part, sacrificing everything so that we could be free. And uh, we owe them the that time spent in the pages of these books so that we can make good decisions going forward. And we're not um, discrediting their memory, discrediting what they did for us by taking away these freedoms that we've been, been given. So, um, yeah, we're going to, we're going to figure out how to get this thing, this thing out there. Cause it is, it is so special. November 11th is veterans day, but at Navy federal credit union, every day is veterans day. I've been a member since 1996, right after boot camp, And right before I went to buds or seal training, Navy Federal Credit Union is for active duty veteran DOD employees and their families. They offer resources like the VA Loans Hub and Best Cities After Service. They offer veteran employment assistance partnerships with nonprofits like The Mission Continues. 
They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer personal finance counseling. They offer 24-7 member service and are a growing community of over 1.8 million veterans just like you. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash veterans. Insured by NCUA, an equal housing lender. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one, in the Amazon series adaptation of The Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Schnees. And go to schnees.com, check out all they have going on. They have a ton of great things on their website. Uh, check them out on Instagram. But today I want to talk about boots because I love everything that they have going on up there, but I probably have... 10 different pairs of their boots, but I started with these right here, the granites. And I love these boots. I got my first elk in these, uh, muzzleloader hunt, New Mexico, about a decade ago. These are the exact same boots right here. So they have some miles on them. They have been to uh, Alaska after bear, wolf, uh, moose, and I just love these boots. So if I go into the backcountry and I have some weight on my back, and I'm planning on coming out even a little heavier, then these are the boots that I take. I was wearing these in Kamchatka, Russia, on a bear hunt, where I went to do some research for Savage Sun. And for those of you who know Savage Sun, that's my third novel in the James Reese series. And uh, you know a lot of it takes place there. And then there's a little story that I fictionalized and dropped into Alaska in that, uh, in that story near kind of closer to the beginning. But these are the boots that I wore. Absolutely love these boots right here and love all the people at Schnee's and just can't say enough good things about them. But they are handcrafted in their Italian boot factory. That's right. You'll find no mass production machinery there. Just a team of world-class boot makers doing their thing. Schnee's only sells boots directly to you, the consumer. This means there is no middleman markup like other boot companies out there. That means that they can put higher emphasis on the materials that go into their boots and you get more boot for the money, higher quality materials and more boot for the money. From the leathers to the tread, every Schnee's boot is made from the absolute finest materials available, backed by Schnee's industry-leading customer service and support. If you have a question or need a solid boot recommendation for your hunt, give them a call. You'll actually get a person on the line who wears the boots and is ready to help. There are a lot of boots out there uh, in their lineup, so definitely give them a call. Let them know what you're going to be doing, and they can make a recommendation for you. When you shop at, shop at schnees.com, that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21. When you do, you'll get 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. Again, that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S.com, promo code JACK21. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's today. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. For full episodes and links to the books, be sure to visit the show notes 
You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can go there to sign up for the newsletter, click on shop for the merch. And until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting.